Father God, we do praise and thank you that you are a God who speaks clearly in your word by your Holy Spirit. You've spoken to us to, to show us your son, to show us Jesus, to show us why we need him, to show us what it means to trust in him and follow him today. Help us to do that now and to see that more clearly. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear Paul, thank you very much for your letter to the Romans. I've just finished reading chapter 1. I really appreciate the way that you were so clear about the dreadful sin that we see around us in the world and how that is a sign of God's wrath and anger. I completely agree with your analysis of the evil. People are selfish and self-centred. You only have to look at the lax approach to COVID regulations and the way people seem so happy to put others' health at risk. And don't get me started on the panic buying of pasta and toilet roll in the first lockdown. People really are selfish idiots. They deserve everything that comes to them. And I certainly don't approve of their wickedness. And you rightly condemn those who do approve of it in verse 32 in chapter 1. And I completely agree that those who reject your rule over their lives in this way are without excuse. This chapter, let me tell you, Paul, was a breath of fresh air. Finally, someone is willing to tell it how it is. And I very much look forward to chapter 2. Yours sincerely, a good and upright reader. Well, dear good and upright reader, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Chapter 2, verse 1. Ouch. Well, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you'll have seen that Paul's overall desire in these early chapters is to demonstrate that every single human being has turned their back on the God who made us. Every single human being. And Paul has focused so far on the way that evil can be seen out there in the world in, in open, flagrant, unashamed rejection of God and his design for human beings. But now he turns his attention to the person who hears that and thinks, yeah, I'm really glad that I'm not like them because they're awful. But, you know, I'm, on, I'm a good person, really. You know, after all, I don't see much evidence of the wrath of God in my life, let me tell you. Remember, that was Paul's argument at the end of chapter 1, the second half, that the wrath of God is seen in, in God giving people over to sin in various ways. But here's a person who says, well, I can, you know, I can see that certainly around me in the world. And, you know, but, but hang on a minute, you know, I've got a respectable job. You know, and the children are doing relatively well at school. And I've never been arrested for anything. And I recycle. And I give blood. And I volunteer at the food bank and I serve at church. And Paul says, you need to know that the wrath of God is coming. There is a day when the whole world will be judged. Do you see that in verse 5? The day of wrath he talks about. And then verse 16, he talks about that day when God will judge men's secrets. And what he's saying is that includes you, Mr. Good and upright reader, or miss, or Mrs. Good, and upright reader. And we often think of a day of judgment as 
bad news. But Mr. Good and Upright Reader would no doubt agree that the idea of a day of judgment is good news. And if, if you look at that, if you look at is Paul's term for it in verse 16, my gospel, he says, my good news. And he says, my, my gospel declares that there will be a day of judgment. And uh, Mr. Good and Upright Reader would say, I'm really glad to hear that because I want to know that wrongs will be righted and evil will be dealt with and justice will be done and no one will escape. And Mr. Good and Upright Reader will be cheering along to that until he realises that the scope of that day of judgment includes him. That is Paul's message this morning. Not simply in order just to make us all feel bad, but to get us to appreciate how good the good news of Jesus' death is when he gets to that in chapter 3. We saw last week, if you remember, the diagnosis is deadly, but we will only appreciate the doctor, the medicine, the solution to this problem that we face if we first appreciate just how deadly and universal it is. And he drives home that truth here in these verses by showing all the ways that Mr. Good and Upright Reader of his letter might try and wriggle out of this day of judgment. All the ways that he might try and wriggle out. And he's saying, they do not work. And maybe as we'll see, it's not just a theoretical reader of this letter, but it's you and I who might be tempted to wriggle out of God's judgment in a similar way. And he points out three things that we often appeal to, but that aren't going to help. And so we're going to see them now. So first of all, in verses 1 to 4, he says, comparisons won't save us. Comparisons won't save us. You see, we all do it, don't we? You know, when faced with an accusation of something we've done wrong, isn't our first instinct to say, but look at him, look at her, she's far worse than me. You know, I've not, I know I've left my clothes on the floor, but look at my brother's room. It's a complete tip. Or I know I'm late for work, but at least I've never called in sick after a night out, unlike one or two of my colleagues that I could name. I know I sometimes struggle with my temper, but I, you know, I'm not a murderer, for goodness sake. I mean, let's get things in, pers in perspective here. And so it goes on. We love to find the sin in others. So think of uh, Dominic Cummings and... Barnard Castle and the rage that surrounded that last year. And then think of Sky News's Kay Burley. Do you remember this? So she, she, first of all, she led the outrage against Dominic Cummings and all who supported him. I kind of gave them ferocious interviews on, on Sky News. Until in December, do you remember what she did? She broke the rule of six at her 60th birthday party in a restaurant. And now she's suspended from work for six months. See, can you see, can you see what Paul is saying here? It's like the old cliche about pointing po fingers at people. Do you know this? You know, you point a finger at people. When you point a finger at others, you've got one finger pointing at them, but what, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. And he's kind of saying that in verse one. At whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Now, in our culture today, I think we can easily mishear exactly what Paul means by this. Because actually, on the, our culture is kind of funny, because on the one hand, it's pretty judgmental. 
and with the likes of Dominic Cummings and Kay Burley and all that kind of thing. We find a way to be pretty judgmental. But there's another sense in which the message don't judge is exactly what people want to say about everything all the time. Isn't that true? No, 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 don't judge. Don't judge. Don't be so judgmental. But Paul isn't just saying, let's all be a bit more friendly and not judge each other and let live and let live and you do whatever feels right for you and you know, we shouldn't be commenting on that. No, he's saying, look, actually... If you look, verse 2, God's judgment against all those sins in chapter 1 is based on truth. In other words, there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is good and evil, and God's judgment will rightly come on those things that deserve it. But don't put yourself in the place of God and think it's your job to tell others how dreadful you are, they are in comparison to you who is somehow exempt from that same judgment. The point is all human beings are in the same boat. So do you, mere human being, think that as you pass judgment on others, you will escape God's judgment? Do you see? Comparisons with others and what they may or may not have done, those comparisons are irrelevant. But then maybe we can't quite believe that. Maybe we can't quite believe that we're in the same category as the worst of sinners, you know, the dictators, the paedophiles, the murderers. You know, we're not, we're not like that. I mean, you know, we're not perfect, certainly, we might think. And, and then you might think, well, if, if, if God was angry with us, like he says in chapter 1, verse 18, well, surely it would be a bit more obvious. And so Paul says, verse 4, no, you've missed the point, you see. The blessings you may be experiencing now and the lack of obvious effects of sin in your life and you're thinking, oh, everything's kind of going okay, roughly speaking, you know, compared to others, as we're saying. But no, he's saying, do you realize those things are a sign of God's kindness and patience? And they're designed to lead you to repentance before the day of judgment comes. Can you see that? Every human being is in the same boat. But the thing is, we like to find ways to excuse ourselves while blaming others. Isn't that right? Don't we do that? Don't you do that? You know, so we say, I'm being passionate, you're raising your voice, he or she is shouting angrily. Do you see how we kind of define things? When she leaves her plate for someone else to clear up, we are furious. When we do it, we expect sympathy because, you know, it's been a long day and, and we're tired and, you know, there's reasons. And Paul's point is not to excuse sin and say nothing matters, but to realise that when we do point these things out in others, it applies equally to ourselves. The picture I sometimes use to explain this is to think of a ship and on that ship, there are loads of passengers and crew, and some of the people on the ship are helpful and considerate to others and thought to be upstanding members of the ship's company, and some of them less so. And in particular, there's a cabin boy who's always scrubbing the decks, and he goes out of his way to be helpful, and, and as he can to people, and, and he's always asking what he can do to help. But there's one detail that I've not explained to you, which is that the flag at the top of the mast is a Jolly Roger. This is a pirate ship. And when the Royal Navy turn up, they don't really care whether there's a cabin boy who's nice to everyone and relatively kinder than all the other sailors on the ship. What they see is a pirate ship 
with everyone on board loyal to the pirate captain and not to Her Majesty the Queen, and they do whatever the Navy does with pirates. Do you see, when the Navy turns up, comparisons won't save you. And it's the same for us before God. We are all in the same boat. So repent now, Paul says. Turn and trust in Jesus. And part of this is about honesty. Do you see what Paul says? You actually, if you're honest, you do do the same things. The things that you accuse in others, you you do do. So you do do the sins of uh, 18 to 32. They're not just true of the obvious things out there in the world. No, you too and I get angry and jealous and gossip and fall into sin and fall into sexual sin as he's highlighted in in the second half of chapter one even if it's just lust that no one else knows about he's saying every human being falls into these sins you lack love and mercy and live life on your own terms part of what we do in this kind of comparison game that we play is to be come blind to what's really going on in our own hearts in order that we can condemn others but say no but I'm somehow in a different category and I'm okay do you see comparisons won't save us and then he goes on secondly shortcuts won't save us verses 5 to 11 shortcuts won't save us if you know if we're all in the same boat the point now in these verses is that there is one standard for all and i'll explain what that has to do with shortcuts in a moment everyone will be repaid according to what they've done verse 6 to to the evildoer there will be wrath and anger verse 8 but to, to the one who persists in doing good and seeks glory honor and immortality there will be eternal life and this standard applies he says in verses 9 and 10 to all people equally to jew and gentile now during uh, lockdown zachary and i have got into new super mario brothers on the wii and we're doing pretty well actually uh, we've completed it indeed and now we're going back and finding all the gold coins but along the way at one point We were very proud of ourselves because completely by accident, we found a shortcut in one of the levels. And that enabled us to skip past a whole load of other levels. And crucially, it enabled us to skip an encounter with one of the bosses in the game. The moment of reckoning before Bowser did not happen. Now, Paul is saying here, don't think you're going to find a shortcut, a back door that means you can get through the day of judgment via a different standard being applied to you. What does he say? He says, God does not show favoritism, verse 11. He is totally fair. Now, this would have been a bit of a shock to a Jewish audience. Now, this doesn't mean that all his readers are Jewish, but he's speaking at this point to those who might think that being Jewish is a way to get a shortcut and avoid the day of judgment. These were the Old Testament people of God, the ones he rescued from Egypt, the ones on whom he set his affection from the start. Surely they don't need to worry. And we'll see a bit more on this in verses 12 to 16 in a moment. But it's worth noticing this argument here in verses 5 to 11 may well take us by surprise. 
Because isn't Paul the apostle of justification by faith alone? Isn't the whole point that the only way through God's judgment is by some kind of shortcut? Isn't that the point? Isn't that the gospel? But, you know, because Jesus, and, and, and otherwise, you know, there's no hope. If we're judged according to what we've done, which seems to be what he's saying here, well, surely there is no hope. We need a shortcut, don't we? We need some way of avoiding the judgment. And verse 13, as we'll see in a moment, picks this up. It is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Well, what, what on earth can Paul mean? Well, some people read this and assume that Paul is describing something that is entirely hypothetical. You know, the possibility is there that someone might receive eternal life because of how they've lived, but of course there aren't any human beings in that category. But actually, throughout this letter, Paul consistently connects faith to obedience. It started in, in, in verse 7 in chapter 1, um, or verse 5 rather, in, in chapter 1, the obedience that comes from faith which implies that the Christian who is saved by faith alone in Jesus, as we'll see later in Romans, nevertheless is saved into a changed life of obedience and service. And so on that day of judgment, the evidence of the Christian person's faith will be that changed life, that repentance he talked about in verse 4. It doesn't earn forgiveness, but it does accompany it. And we'll come back to this later in the letter. But for now, his point is there are no shortcuts via a different standard being applied to you on that day. Think about it like this. Think about what happens when somebody faces a huge debt. You know, they've splashed out on the credit cards and they've spent, spent it all on fast cars and expensive holidays. And now they've got thousands of pounds of debt. And the debt collector is now writing daily and there are suspicious knocks at the door that sound like bailiffs. Well, there are two possible responses at that point. See, one is to try and pretend that everything is fine. There is no debt. Just going to pretend it's not there. It's all a big misunderstanding. Just going to carry on life as normal. The other way is to look and see if there's a way for the debt that you face to be paid in full. Can you see the difference? Paul is ta taking his readers through a very careful argument in these chapters, and we're still only near the start. But what he wants people to see and understand is that there is no shortcut that says, my sin isn't really a problem, and I don't really need to change my life. No, there is a real debt, and that debt must be paid by someone. Do you see? There are no shortcuts. That is what these verses are arguing. And, and I guess there are two possible attitudes to sin and to falling short of God's standards today then. You know, one is to shrug our shoulders and say, well, it doesn't really matter. We'll find a way through that day of judgment. No one's perfect. I'm sure it will be fine. We'll muddle through. The other approach is to say, no, look, sin really does matter. And my only way through that day of judgment will be if Jesus has paid that debt for me. That's where Paul's argument is heading. Do you see, there is, that, there is a difference, isn't there, between the person who ignores their sin entirely and the person who, who grieves it, who confesses it, and knows there is no other solution 
than the cross of Jesus. When we sin and we hurt God or others in our lives, you know, when we have that lockdown meltdown and we lose the plot, you know, is our instinct to brush it under the carpet and to say, oh, it doesn't matter, it's not important? Or to acknowledge, no, actually, we're all in the same boat. Every human being. We will all stand before a holy God who does not show favoritism. There will be no shortcuts. And therefore, to do the painful and necessary work of saying, that was wrong. What I did was wrong. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Because we know, and whether we're saying that to God or whether we're saying it to each other, we know that if we do not turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, there will be no hope for us. Shortcuts won't save us. And then thirdly and finally, privilege won't save us. Paul now uh, spells out a particular type of shortcut that was a temptation to some of his hearers, which was to assume that just because of who they were, the outcome on the day of judgment would be different for them. So they might argue, you know, we have the law, which by which they mean our ancestors heard Moses give them the law at Mount Sinai. And Paul says, well, great, but it's not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who do it. And then for some reason the translators put the next two verses in brackets, which isn't really necessary, they're not there in the original, but he, he then argues that these Jewish Christian hearers are being shown up by their Gentile Christian fellow believers who show, if you look, it's quite a dense argument, I appreciate it's not easy to see exactly what he's saying, but if you look, he's saying, you're shown up by your gentle Christian fellow believers who show that the law is written on their hearts. Now that is a promise that God made in Jeremiah chapter 31, that there would come a time when the law would not just be something that was an external thing that you had to obey, but it would be written on the hearts of God's people. And then they would obey from the heart and there would be a willingness to obey that would come from inside the, belief, the, 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 the members of God's people. And so look, Paul is saying, look, here are some people whose ancestors didn't hear the law at Mount Sinai because they're Gentiles, they're not Jewish. But they're showing that God's promise has been fulfilled in them by the way that they do what the law calls for to love God and to love their neighbour. So he's, do you see what he's saying? He's saying you can't just appeal to privilege and where you started and your heritage as a people. It's what you do, not who you are, that will matter. And in the background is Deuteronomy chapter 9 that we heard uh, Roger read in the first reading, where he says, don't think that it's because of your righteousness that God chose you, people of Israel. It's because he wants to fulfill his promises to Abraham. You, you know, you are a stiff-necked people, he says in, the, in that reading. You're disobedient, in other words. So don't presume on your privilege as if you are intrinsically better than the rest of the world. The plan from the start of God's promises to Abraham was not to single out one people at the expense of the rest of the world, but to use one people to be a blessing to the rest of the world. 
And so throughout the letter, Paul is very careful to say it's both Jew and Gentile. You can go too far the other way, of course. You can go as far as saying, well, therefore God's people, the, the Jewish people, don't matter in God's plan at all. And he's not saying that. And he, he says that very clearly in various ways through the letter. But the point is, it's not that there are two different standards to be applied. There is one standard. It's not those who hear the law. It's those who do the law. Privilege won't save you. You see, it's like, it's like on the Titanic. And there are kind of first-class passengers, and there are second and third-class passengers, and the, and the first-class passengers are having a wonderful time in the captain's dining room with amazing food and wine and the best entertainment until they hit the iceberg. And at that point, it doesn't actually matter what class you're in. The Atlantic Ocean doesn't discriminate. Your only hope is a lifeboat. And if some were tempted to boast in the privilege of <clears throat> having the law instead of actually doing it, maybe today we need to be reminded. Merely having the privilege of being part of a church is not the same as living out our faith. Merely having the privilege of hearing God's word explained and proclaimed is not the same as it showing in our lives. So if our response to knowing of there's a day of judgment is like, well, it's okay, I'm one of the good guys. You know, I'm, one of, I'm a churchgoer. And uh, I've, I've, I listen to the sermon each week. Or even I preach the sermon each week. If that's our response, we've, we've got our hope in the wrong place. Because there is only one standard. And the privilege won't save us. As we think, as we finish then, let's think about the implications for the two things that Paul keeps coming back to in this letter, which are the unity of God's people and the mission of God's people. Comparisons and shortcuts and privileges are all the enemy of unity because they make us compare and they make us compete. And in a church, it might be that we think, you know, oh, here are the people who serve more or who give more, or who turn up more. <clears throat> and we end up with a concept of an inner circle where some count more than others, or some are more special than others. And maybe we're intimidated by another Christian who just seems to have it together and serves and lives for Jesus, and we just feel inferior. Or maybe we, we secretly feel rather good about ourselves and our performance and our commitment. Or you see, that, that, that's all playing the comparison game. And neither of those feelings is of, of either pride or despair is any good for unity. And neither of those feelings will help us on the day of judgment, you see. There's one standard for all. So that's how this impacts unity. And it's the same with mission, with reaching out to the world around us. <clears throat> if it's not true that there are just that there's just one standard, no exceptions, no shortcuts, no comparisons, no privilege, then, well, we won't bother to reach out at all. Because, you know, here's this non-Christian friend, and she's such a nice person, and she's so well thought of by everyone, she doesn't really need to hear the gospel, does she? Because yeah, I'm sure there'll be some other kind of standard that God would use for somebody like her, because she's so lovely. We might, we might end up there and that just stops us doing mission because we think there must be, a different, there must be another way through that day of judgment for certain people. And so 
don't really need to tell this person about Jesus. Or, or we go the other way, and we kind of pull the drawbridge up, and we think, you know, the world out there is full of sinners. Let's keep them out. But we don't realise that in pulling the drawbridge up, we just trap sinners inside the church. So there is a day coming when God will judge the world by one standard for all people everywhere. Comparisons, shortcuts and privileges won't save us. What will save us is Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him. And we'll come to precisely how that works and how that's true as we come through this letter. But for now, if we are a Christian, if we're trusting in Jesus today, we need to understand this is what we've been saved from. This is why we need Jesus. Let's stick with him. Let's share him with others because there is no other way. There is only one standard. None of these other things will save us. None of these other things will save our loved ones and those around us. And if we've yet to put our trust in Jesus, we need to see there is a day coming when God will judge the world. And on that day, none of these things will save us. These comparisons, there won't be any shortcuts. We cannot rely on privilege. But we can turn and trust in Jesus. Let's pause to reflect and I'll lead us in prayer. Help us, Heavenly Father, to see how in the light of that day when you would judge the world, nothing else will do than to turn and trust in Jesus. We're sorry when we minimise our sin through comparisons, through thinking there must be shortcuts, through relying on privilege of one kind or another. We want to rely only on Jesus. If, we, if, we've, if we're yet to do that, even today, help us to, to put our trust in him, turn from our sin, to know that in him only is the forgiveness of sins. And if we're doing that now, we pray that we would stick with Jesus and that we would be filled then with compassion and a sense of urgency to take this good news to the world around us too. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.